Well, uh, church, um, we all know that first impressions are incredibly important in life. One of the reasons why first impressions are so important is that they often last well beyond that initial moment of introduction. Therefore, if you don't leverage first impressions correctly, those whom you meet might get the wrong idea in their head, and it can be difficult to change that. Let me give you an example. Years ago, uh, there was a young lady who worked at a telephone company. Over the years, she progressed upwards through the ranks to an executive-level position. Well, one evening, she was at an event with her fiancé and his family where her future father-in-law introduced her to the crowd as his son's fiancé, the call girl. (laughs) Get it? Telephone company? Call girl? Now, I don't know if he did that intentionally as a joke or intentionally as an insult or altogether unintentionally as simply a poor choice of describing her vocation. But regardless, whether it was done intentionally or unintentionally, how long do you think it took her to live that one down? She's still known for it today across the internet because that's where I found her story. You know, there's no doubt that first impressions matter and that odd introductions can leave a lasting impression. Which makes our passage today from John chapter 2 such an interesting one. This morning we're looking at the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed. The Apostle John describes this miracle as the first of Jesus' signs. Out of all of the information that, that Jesus wanted to communicate to us about who he is and about what he is all about, out of all of the signs that he gave, this was what he chose to communicate first, that he could turn water into wine. Yippee! What an odd first impression. You know, with all the suffering in this world, you'd think that Jesus would have done something much more impressive, much more significant with his first miracle, like making a sick person well or causing a lame man to walk or or raising someone from the dead. You'd think he would have addressed one of the more serious and significant problems that people face. But this, changing water into wine, at first glance, it seems barely more significant than helping someone to find a parking spot. (laughs) And yet, this is what Jesus chose to do first. This is how Jesus wanted to make a first impression. Why? What in the world was Jesus seeking to communicate in this first miraculous act? What did he want to reveal about himself through this first sign that he communicated? Why was this the first impression that Jesus gave us? That's what we're going to consider this morning as we continue in our Epiphany series entitled, Jesus Revealed. Each week throughout this series, we're looking at one of the signs that Jesus gave to us in the Gospel of John in order to reveal his glory to the world. And we're seeking to to read the sign, to interpret the sign, and to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to us with each of these signs that he gives, with the ultimate goal that his glory may be more revealed in our lives, that we might know him and love him more, And ultimately, that we all 
might find life in his name. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to, again, open with me to John chapter 2 as we consider this first sign that Jesus gave to us when he turned water into wine. Now, in order for us to understand why this was the first sign that Jesus performed, and in order for us to understand what he was seeking to reveal about himself in this sign, to understand why this is more than just a a neat party trick, we need to understand a bit of the cultural context in which this miracle takes place. John chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And as the story progresses, we learn that Jesus and his mother are present at this wedding and that at some point in the course of the event, the wine ran out. And these two pieces of information that they were at a wedding when the wine ran out tells us all that we need to know about the significance of this moment. First, they were at a wedding. Now, I know there's at least three families in our church who have planned weddings within the past year. So many of you are familiar with the size and the scope and the pressures and the, the cost of planning a wedding. Even in the midst of a global pandemic, it's a big undertaking. But if you think that planning a wedding is a big event in our day, in the ancient Jewish culture, but weddings were far bigger events. At this time in history, weddings weren't an, an afternoon or an evening event. Instead, they could often last for up to seven days. And it wasn't just your family and your friends who you invited. Jewish weddings would often include one's entire community. Their village or their town would attend. These were huge events with profound cultural significance attached to them. And unlike in our day and age when the bride's family is typically responsible for covering the cost of a wedding, in these days, the responsibility of providing for the wedding laid with the groom's family. It was his responsibility to provide the hospitality and the food and the drinks for the guests. And with that responsibility, there were certain social obligations that were expected of them, one of which was reciprocal hospitality. Where, for example, if last year I invited you to my son's marriage feast, fed you lavishly, and provided you with all of the wine you cared to drink, it is a given that you will, and that you actually must, do the same for me when I attend your son's marriage feast. And in a culture like the Middle East, it is based in honor and shame Failure to respond with this kind of reciprocal hospitality comes with severe social consequences. And this leads us to the second piece of information that we know about this wedding, that the wine had run out. Now, if the drink stops flowing at a wedding in our day and age, it is no big deal. Lindsay and I actually planned for this to happen at our wedding. We planned a time at which the bar would close and that the drinks would stop being served. Now, Lindsay's dad, in his best Jesus impersonation, ultimately decided to keep the bar open a bit longer than we had planned. But even if he hadn't, it would have been no big deal. It might have made a few folks sad that there was no more to drink, but it wouldn't have made an ounce of difference to the joy of our wedding or to the celebration of our reception or to the success of our marriage that we were entering into. No more wine partway through our wedding wouldn't have made the slightest bit of difference. But in first century Israel, this was a different story. For if the wine ran out at a Jewish wedding, 
And the groom's family didn't live up to the social expectations of reciprocal hospitality. That's not a small thing. That is an absolute disaster. This is why folks would have served the best wine first at a party, and then after the guests had had plenty to drink, they'd serve the poor wine later in the event. The wine served later in a wedding was often watered down in order to make it last longer, so that this very thing wouldn't happen, so that the wine wouldn't run out. But on this occasion, it was too late. The wine had run out. They had none left to water down. There was no more wine, even poor wine, to serve to the guests. And this groom and his family were going to fail to meet the social expectations of their culture. They were going to fail to provide the reciprocal hospitality which was required and that everyone would have expected. And as a result, the significance of this dilemma And the consequences that came along as a result of it are really almost impossible to overstate. (laughs) Some of those consequences are that the marriage would forever have been branded as a disgrace. There would have been no way for them to have recovered from this. The host family would be completely shunned in their community. The newly married couple would carry a, a social stigma of shame with them for the rest of their days as would their children and their children's children. Whatever joy had been experienced and celebrated during the feast up to this point would be immediately transformed into anger and scorn and derision at this family. Some commentators even suggest that those other families who had previously hosted this family at their respective marriage feasts would now have grounds for a lawsuit for damages because they were not treated in kind. They didn't receive from this family what they had given to this family. As a result of having run out of wine, this marriage would be ruined before it was even started. This would literally devastate their family, financially and reputationally, for generations to come. And so, can you imagine what the groom felt when he discovered that they were running low on wine? running out of wine. Though no one at the party knew it yet, he knew that under the surface there was a major crisis brewing. Though no one else was aware, he knew that his future and the future of his family, his new bride and their future children, it all hung in the balance. Can you imagine that stress? Can you imagine the worry? Can you imagine the fear and the the internal crisis that he must have been experiencing? He knew that when all of this was discovered, that it was going to ruin them. And this is why what Jesus done at this party is so significant. This is why when Jesus turns the water into wine, it is so much more than a cool party trick that Jesus can do. Because what Jesus does in this first miracle, when he turns the water into wine, what he is doing is that he transforms the groom's guilt into innocence. And he replaces his shame with honor and glory. I mean, think about it. The groom is guilty. He made a misstep and and violated their community's social covenant by running out of wine. In their culture, he would rightly deserve what was coming to him. 
But when Jesus miraculously provides an abundance of wine for the rest of the feast, he transforms the groom's guilt into innocence. Jesus' miracle takes the groom's guilt away. He makes it as if the groom had never made his mistake, never ran out of wine. Jesus covers over his error and makes it as if he had done no wrong. Not only does Jesus deal with the groom's guilt by making him innocent, but he also replaces the groom's shame with honor and glory. Rather than experience the condemnation of his community, rather than be ostracized and shunned and looked down upon for the rest of his life, but rather than dragging his new bride and their future children down in disgrace, Jesus' miracle allows the groom to be celebrated rather than shamed. It allows him to be honored rather than hated. Look at it with me. In verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Whereas his own actions were about to make him a pariah, Jesus' miracle allows the groom to be praised. By performing this first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and by turning the water into wine, Jesus removes the groom's guilt and covers over his shame. And the reason why I believe that Jesus made this his very first miracle, the reason why this is the first thing that Jesus makes known to us about himself through the signs that he gave, is because every one of us needs this in our lives. Every one of us needs this in our lives. We saw why in the Old Testament reading today from Genesis 2 and 3. Before Adam and Eve were guilty of breaking God's laws, they experienced perfect unity with God and with one another. They had nothing on their conscience, nothing to to hide, no fear. The scriptures tell us that they were naked and unashamed. Everything was right. But as soon as they disobeyed God and ate the fruit of the tree that they were not to eat from, everything changed. And suddenly, everything was wrong. Rather than being innocent, they knew they were guilty. Rather than being comfortable in their own skin, they suddenly felt shame. Rather than desiring communion with God, they found themselves hiding from Him. Rather than desiring intimacy with one another, They wanted to cover themselves and not be exposed. Rather than knowing only joy and life, they now knew fear and the certainty of death. Literally, everything had changed. And that's been the state of every human being ever since then. The scriptures tell us that we are born with this same sin nature in our lives we've inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. We are all guilty of breaking God's laws, and and we all experience the associated shame that accompanies our guilt. This is the first and foundational problem with humanity, that the guilt of our sin brings shame into our lives, and it separates us from God and from one another. But in this first sign that Jesus gives to us, what he is showing us is that by the miraculous work that he will perform, he can redeem us from our guilt. 
that he can remove all of our shame. He can transform our guilt into innocence and replace our shame with honor. This is what he does for the groom in turning the water into wine. And it is a sign pointing to what Jesus will ultimately do for us in the miracle of his death and resurrection. For upon the cross, Jesus bore our iniquities in himself. He took our guilt and paid for it with his own life. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He became guilty so that we could become innocent. He took away our guilt, makes it as if it was never there. And he removes our shame. Through the prophet Zephaniah, God said, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all of the earth. And by his death and resurrection, this is what Jesus did. He has made it so that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Because of the cross, what is true about those who believe in Jesus is that our identity is no longer one of guilt and condemnation, but of adoption and inheritance. Because of Jesus' death upon the cross, we have become children of God, children of the King, and heirs of eternal life, heirs, inheritors of His kingdom. Because of the cross, when God looks upon you, He doesn't see your sin, your shortcomings, your failures, your inadequacies, or your guilt. Instead, He sees His beloved son or daughter who's been covered by the righteousness of Christ. He sees Christ's perfection in you. And he delights in you and celebrates you as a beloved child with whom he is well pleased. Church, this is the significance of Jesus turning water into wine. This is why Jesus made this his very first miracle. It is far more than a party trick. It is the foundational need of every human being. It is a sign that Jesus has come to deal with the problem of our guilt and our shame, and that he is able to deal with our guilt and our shame. In this sign, Jesus shows us that he wants to bring us before the master of the feast and present us as perfect in his sight, unblemished, without transgression. He wants us to receive the credit for the work that he had done so that we might be celebrated rather than condemned. This is the good news of the gospel. And in all of the scriptures, I'm not sure I can think of a better way for Jesus to communicate to us what he is all about than by the sign that he gave at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, there are a dozen other aspects to this story that we could dive into and find incredible meaning and significance in. But we could talk about how this happened on the third day, an allusion to the the timing of Jesus' resurrection. We could talk about how to the Jewish people, wine represented joy and how Jesus brings abundant joy to the party. We could talk about how Mary instructs the servants to to do whatever Jesus told them to do and how their obedience was used in God's work at this wedding. We could talk about how the wine was made from the water in the jars that were used for purification, an allusion to the fact that that the solution to our guilt was no longer a ceremonial cleansing with water, but a divine offering of blood. There are so many facets to this story, and all of them are profound. 
But the main thing that I want you to take away from this account is that Jesus has come to fix what is fundamentally wrong in our hearts and with our world. With this first miracle, he addressed our fundamental problem. Church, first impressions are often lasting ones. And in this miracle, Jesus has certainly given us one. May we continue to receive his new wine in our lives for God's glory and for our good.